Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and for offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've managed to get through almost six years of pastoral ministry without having to preach on the binding of Isaac, but here we are. Most scholars call it the binding of Isaac instead of the sacrifice of Isaac because at the end of the day, Isaac does not end up being sacrificed. But that doesn't really make this story any less scandalous to us. 
Christians and non-Christians alike have written some pretty scathing things about this story of Abraham and Isaac. Richard Dawkins, in his indictment of Christianity, The God Delusion, says that this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse and bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships. John Holbert, a retired professor of preaching at Perkins School of Theology in Texas, wrote a reflection urging pastors to refrain from preaching this text. Never again, he writes, will I preach a sermon based on this story unless I use it to repudiate its horrors in as stark and powerful a way as I can conjure up. We preachers must learn to speak of the demands of faith without resorting to stories that employ the abuse and murder of a child to make a point. And Ellen Davis, a professor of Bible and practical theology at Duke Divinity School, wrote in a chapter on this text that she could only ever remember hearing one preacher take on this story directly, ending the sermon with a cry, I'm glad I don't worship the God of Abraham. After which later in the service, he recited a liturgical prayer in which he prayed to the God of Abraham. This is a hard text. It's one that many preachers try to stay away from. Because what do we do with this text? What do we do with a God who asks a father to kill his only son? What do we do with a God that allows Abraham to make this long, slow trudge of a journey, walking beside his son who is carrying the wood he is about to be burned on? What do we do with this text except to hear it, to shudder in horror, and then to turn away from it, wishing it did not exist in this book that we love? but it does exist. And not only does it exist, it is a central story in the book of Genesis, almost literally so central in the book. Jewish scholar Everett Fox claims that this is the paradigmatic narrative of the entire book. So it's there, we can't ignore it. But maybe, we think, maybe we can just take it as a story. Maybe this story is simply meant to be symbolic of Israel breaking free from the pagan practices of child sacrifice that were practiced by the different people groups around them. Maybe it's just a parable. It didn't really happen. It's just a, a story representing a moment in Israelite history. Except that while God does stop the sacrifice of Isaac, he doesn't come outright and condemn the practice. Abraham doesn't ever in this story question God's demand. We might assume that that is what God would think, but there's no great moral claim being made about the evils of child sacrifice that would suggest that that is the point of this story. So we can't ignore the text, and we can't explain it away as being something other than what it is. 
so we have to confront it head on. We have to take it seriously, take it at its word, and figure out what on earth this story is doing in the Bible. And why it is so early on in the Bible. I mean, surely, if we're going to have a text as difficult as this one, you'd want to bury it somewhere in the middle. Put it with the minor prophets that no one ever reads. Don't put it right at the beginning where someone new to scripture might read it and, horrified, stop reading the Bible altogether. We have to ask big questions about this text. And when I think about hearing this story as a kid in Sunday school or in Hellings always revolves around what this story says about Abraham. It's always marveling at Abraham's faith, which is part of this story. But I think the real question at the heart of this text is what does this story tell us about Abraham's God? And I think this story tells us two things, two seemingly contradictory things about God. First, tells us that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that God is beyond anything we can comprehend. And second, it tells us that this powerful God is also bewilderingly vulnerable. So let's tackle the first point first. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that even as the plot of this story moves forward, there are really three repeating cycles that happen in the text. Three times Abraham is summoned, first by God, then by Isaac, and then by the angel. Three times, Abraham responds immediately, here I am. And three times, his summoner acts upon his response. God makes a demand. Isaac asks a question. The angel gives reprieve. So first, Abraham is summoned by God. Abraham, God says, to which Abraham immediately responds, here I am. And then God's command, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. In the text, it's that simple. God makes this unbelievable demand of Abraham. And remember that Abraham has just sent Hagar and Ishmael into the desert, probably assuming that they are dead. He does not know necessarily that God has saved them. So for all intents and purposes, Isaac is truly the only son left to Abraham. And the God who said that he would make a great nation from Isaac, this only son, is now asking Abraham to kill him. Does Abraham question this? 
Does he kick and scream? Does he argue this out with God? We don't know. All we know is that the next morning, Abraham packs up Isaac and some wood and some servants and sets out. Which brings us to the second cycle. Once Abraham and Isaac are on their own, climbing the mountain, Isaac addresses Abraham. Father, he says. Now the NIV translates Abraham's response as, yes, my son. But in the Hebrew, Abraham says the exact same word to Isaac that he says to God and to the angel. Here I am. That's no small thing. Ellen Davis of Duke Divinity School writes that the repetition of this phrase in the story shows Abraham's agony. He is torn apart by these conflicting responses. He is standing between God and his son, giving himself totally and promptly to them both. And the query Isaac presents to his father is a natural one. He spotted a problem over their long trek. They're making this journey to present a sacrifice to God, but there is no animal. Then Abraham responds to Isaac, and his statement to Isaac stands alone. It's outside of the normal pattern of call, response, response. And that makes it the focal point of the entire story, this thing that is different. Abraham says to Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide. Does Abraham believe God has already provided the lamb in Isaac? Does Abraham believe God will provide another lamb? We don't know. All we know is that in this moment, Abraham is fully relying on God. He doesn't know what will happen, but he knows God will provide what is needed. That does not make the demand of God any less scandalous. If the lamb is to be Isaac, it does not rid Abraham or us of the contradiction God seems to have landed himself in here, to have promised a great nation from Isaac and to now be demanding his life. But that, says some Old Testament scholars, is a big part of the point of this story. God does not fit within our finite capacity for reason. This text, says Brueggemann, does not flinch before nor pause at the unreasonableness of this story. God is not a logical premise who must perform in rational consistency. God is a free Lord who comes as he will. When Amanda Bankhuizen, my professor of Old Testament at Calvin Seminary, was being interviewed by Synod before being appointed to the faculty. Someone from the floor 
who sounded for all the world like he was trying to stump her with a really hard question, asked, what is the central message of the book of Job? Job, of course, being another story in which a father gives up too much, suffers too much, faces trials and temptations, not by God this time, but seemingly ignored by God. And Bankhausen sat for a moment, and she thought about it. And then she said, clearly and simply, I am God, and you are not. I am God, and you are not. I think we could argue that that is the message at the heart of Abraham's whole story, too. I am God, and you are not. You don't have to understand everything that I say or do. In fact, you won't be able to understand everything I say or do. I am God, you are not. Can you trust that? And it's that question. Can you trust that I am God and therefore I am enough? It's that question that leads to the second aspect of this story, which rather seems to contradict the first. God, in this story, is vulnerable. The beginning of chapter 22 in the Hebrew is literally translated, sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. And Davis notes that that is not a common way that stories begin in the Old Testament. And things in scripture that are different than the pattern are asking that we pay attention to them. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the things that this story comes after? Well, at the beginning of this story is a perfect, beautiful creation. God living in perfect relationship with the people he loves. And then, quite quickly, we get rebellion. God's people want to be like God, and thus they create a crack in God's perfect world. Brothers murder brothers. Cities descend into such wickedness that God destroys everything with a flood. The descendants of Noah don't seem to be much better. They build a tower trying to reach the heavens that they might rule over everything. From the very get-go, the people God created have rejected God, have tried to be like God themselves. So now God is going to do something different. Instead of trying to directly bless all of humanity, God will work through one man, through one family, one people to bless the world. It is, says Davis, hardly a surefire plan because now everything depends on the faithfulness of this one man, Abraham. And Abraham, up to this point, has given God good reason to be a little anxious. 
Twice he has passed Sarah off as his sister to protect himself, not trusting God to protect them. And he slept with his wife's servant to produce the heir that God promised, not trusting that God would provide one. Abraham's faith has been strong, but it has wavered. So God needs to know, is desperate to know, will this man he has chosen, upon whom he is resting this new plan of salvation, will he be faithful? Will he choose God? Will Abraham take God as God is? Or will Abraham like all the people before him, decide that he knows better. Brueggemann said that God is a free Lord who comes as he will. The kicker is that humans were created with free will too. We are free to choose God or not choose God. Free to love God or to reject him. Free will is the only thing that makes true, loving relationship possible. So is God sovereign over all things? Yes. Does God know all things? Yes. Is God vulnerable in his love for his people? Yes. We have to take the story of the testing of Abraham as a real test. This is not a tyrannical God putting Abraham through this misery for the fun of it. This is a God desperate to know that his beloved creature loves him too. That he trusts God enough to do this thing that is not only a father's worst nightmare, but seems to contradict the very promise God has made. When the angel of the Lord steps in at the last moment and provides a ram for the sacrifice instead of Isaac, you can hear the relief in the angel's voice, in God's voice. Now I know that you fear God. And because God now knows this, he reaffirms the covenant he made with Abraham. He knows he can carry on with his plan. I will bless you and your descendants, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. This is what we discover in the story of the binding of Isaac. A God who is sovereign, and yet somehow is vulnerable. A God who makes promises and then seems to contradict them. A God who provides. And this contradiction of testing and providence, says Martin Luther, can only be reconciled in the word of God. The word of God made flesh. The word that declares that he who is dead lives. Resurrection, says Brueggemann, concerns the keeping of a promise 
when there is no ground for it. Faith is nothing other than trust in the power of the resurrection against every deathly circumstance. It is through this word, this word made flesh, that we approach with fear and trembling the story of the binding of Isaac. For in this word, we see true vulnerability. Davis writes, It is in Christ hanging on the cross that we see, for once in history, the two sides of this story fully joined in one person. In Jesus Christ, we see a son of Abraham sparing nothing, totally faithful in covenant relationship with God. And at the same time, we see in Jesus God's total faithfulness, expressed now as excruciating vulnerability, even to death on a cross. Why does this story come so early on in the narrative of scripture? Because it tells us something about the God who is at the center of this narrative. Something we need to hold on to to make sense of this whole story. If we can move beyond the initial shock of this story, we see a God who loves his people and desperately longs for their love in return. And we see a God who will one day go the length that no father would ever want to go to prove his love. For God, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a shocking thing indeed. Would you pray with me? God, sometimes your word bewilders us. It scandalizes us. We cannot make sense of it. Because we cannot fully make sense of you, you who seem to be full of contradictions, you whose ways are not our ways. And yet it is because your ways are not our ways that we have reason to hope, reason to trust. For you, God above all things, are thus the God who gives peace that passes all understanding. The God who brings life when all that is anticipated is death. So help us to trust. To trust that you are the God of resurrection. To trust in your love. Help us to trust. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who was sacrificed for us, the true and better Isaac. Amen.